0: mm <sniffs>
1: Hi, Bill. Welcome to Florida.
2: Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: First, please say a prayer to protect us and all our viewers from any reaction we might have to the information we're about to hear and from any spiritual
2: attack. Mm, Okay, sure. Abba Father, we come to you right now and we ask your protection over us and over anybody who might be watching this uh, video. We pray that you would protect us from any kind of uh, danger, any kind of attack. Um, we pray also that the spirit of truth would prevail through all of this. We also ask that no one would be triggered by anything that is being said here, but rather that the spirit of peace would come through. And we, we just ask for all, all attacks of the enemy to be bound right now in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Before we go into any detail, what's the chronological order of all the groups and practices you
0: did?
2: Well, uh, basically, to start out with, I was raised Catholic, um, Catholic grade school, high school, the whole bit. Went to a Catholic college. While I was there, I was introduced to the occult and witchcraft by some of my professors and fellow students. I got into white witchcraft while I was in college, <coughs> became a witch priest before I graduated. And uh, then, once I was out in the world, uh, I met my wife. We became a high priest and high priestess together and started covens up and down uh, Lake Michigan and also in Iowa. Then we uh, basically uh, went on and developed, got involved in ceremonial magic. And uh, I got involved originally in Freemasonry, uh, went through the degrees, became a Master Mason. Um, and at that point... More or less, at the same time, I also got involved with the Church of Satan for reasons that we'll probably explore later on. Uh, Then I got involved in higher levels of masonry. It's called esoteric masonry. At that point, I had to sell my soul to the devil. Then finally, uh, as we were kind of going down, circling the drain, so to speak spiritually, because hardcore Satanism, black magic, and all of that, I was also I at a certain point I had to go through an initiatory experience and become involved in, involved with vampirism. Uh and then at that point, uh where I was really at the deepest, darkest part of my life, a lady uh had sent a check. I'd sent a check right at the Church of Satan and the lady had sent the check back to me, you know, cancelled check. And apparently she was a Christian bank officer out there in San Francisco. But it's because she'd written on the check, I'll be praying for you in the name of Jesus. And that started a cascade of events, which first of all bounced me into the Mormon church for five years, which I thought at the time was a Christian church. But then the Almighty used Mormonism to help me come to a saving knowledge of the true gospel, the true Jesus Christ, Yeshua, and at that point, I got born again, and that was in 1984. So that's the short version.
1: Wow! Hey, okay. thank you. <laughs> yes. Did anything happen in your childhood to influence you to go in a certain direction?
2: Well, I had really good parents. You know, no, no issues there. But uh, I, I had some experiences. Probably the most prominent one of which was, uh, like most kids uh, in my age, I, I was born in 1949. We went out trick-or-treating every year, and that was a big, fun thing to do. And nothing really was thought of it as being bad. And uh, one year I was out, I was probably eight or nine years old, and I was walking down the street with my buddy, trick-or-treating from door to door, and all of a sudden I just felt like looking up in the sky because it was a beautiful October night. And as I looked up in the sky, it seemed like instead of the stars being there, the sky was utterly black and gradually emerging from the blackness were these thousands of leathery creatures. It looked kinda of like if you ever been inside of a cave that was full of bats, that's what it looked like. And all these things had little ruby red eyes just blazed out at me. And I'm standing down here on the sidewalk and I just felt this thrill of evil go through me like their eyes pierced my very soul. And then my friend who'd kept on walking, he says, Hey Bill, what's going on? Come on, you know, wanna get more candy. And I looked at him and I looked back up in the sky. It was a normal evening sky again. But I think at that moment, I was touched by the spirit of evil. And from that time on, I began to get more and more. I became fascinated with, like, haunted houses and ESP and UFOs and all these kind of things, which in those days were very fringe and, and very weird. But but I was really interested. And that kind of started everything up.
1: Wow. Do you have any idea why you had that experience and lots of other people haven't had an experience like that?
2: Well, I, I mean, I, I can only speculate, but I think part of it was, is, as I said, in those days nobody really thought of, of it being an issue to go out and, you know, so to speak, celebrate a cult holiday like that. My parents didn't pray over me, they didn't, you know say oh you know bless you or anything they just sent me out and and i think i was basically walking around in a basically spiritually naked state you know i had no protection and i think there may have been things in my my background or whatever that predisposed me to that but i may have just been in the wrong place at the wrong time you know
1: Mm -hmm. i see thank you and what happened when you were about 12 years old in the north woods in wisconsin
2: well every other summer my folks like to go up to rhinelander wisconsin which is up in a beautiful area with lots of lakes and everything. And one night they'd gone somewhere and I was alone and we had a cabin right down by this lake. And uh, it was a beautiful night again. And I was just sitting out on the, on the, on the dock enjoying the night. And all of a sudden it was the strangest thing. First of all, I heard this wind, like a mighty wind, but the trees didn't move. And then that ceased. And then, the trees started to move and sway back and forth pretty violently, but there was no wind. And the hair kind of stood up on the back of my neck at that point, because this is like, this is really strange. And all of a sudden I saw this blackness rise over the horizon. I could see all the way across the lake. And it was like this vast head came up that blotted out the stars. And it rose and rose. And finally I could see that it was a, it was a giant human body. That literally bestrode the vault of the heavens, and everything stopped. I mean, all the the night creatures stopped. I mean, there hear no frogs, no crickets, no nothing, and you could I could see these legs go right over me, and uh, and then the other leg went, and, and for a moment you could not even see the stars in the sky, and then as soon as the the second leg, so to speak, passed out of sight and I kind of tried to watch, but there was a kind of a, a hillock behind me and trees and so it it was out of my sight. And at that moment everything returned to normal, except I, I my heart was just pounding and I I I couldn't even imagine what I had seen. I was only twelve years old and it was like this great, awesome dark thing.
1: Wow. Did did you ever work out later what that was you saw? Well yeah,
2: after several years later we, we learned that Wisconsin is sort of Notable for having a lot of strange things going on, especially in the north half of the state. And we have, a little, and there's a, there's what's called a great old one who's called Ithakwa, or the Windwalker, the Wendigo. And I believe that I was <laughs> blessed with having a visit from him that night.
1: Wow. Did you, um, it, did anything ever happen to you while you were a teenager to get you interested in the occult?
2: Well, that probably was the big thing. I, I, as I said, I started getting intrigued by things like, you know, haunted houses and, and when I would, when we'd go on vacation trips around the country, I'd always think my dad takes side trips to places where I knew there was a haunted house. And we had this one house in our, in our community where it was the strangest thing. It was what we would call a poltergeist type thing. And one of the girls in our school lived there. And once in a while, these ghosts would have knife fights in the kitchen. <laughs> now, that sounds really funny, but they'd, they'd come down in the morning for breakfast, and it was like every knife, you know, because everybody has these little kitchen knives and steak knives sitting out, you know, to, to use, and every knife would be buried in the cabinetry. Oh, no. Just like there's these two spirits going, foing, 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 like that. Wow. And there was no explanation for it. The doors were locked, there was no sign of breaking and entering. I mean, it was just. Like this, and and I I kept getting exposed to these weird little things. I mean, nothing really spectacular. I suppose some people think having a knife fight by invisible ghosts in your kitchen was pretty spectacular, but it just was kind of a cumulative thing. I got, and you see, that's the interesting thing is that the the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis has said that the occult awakens within you a spiritual kind of lust that's very akin to physical lust. And once you're exposed to it, once that's awakened, it, it like creates this itch for more and more. And it's very hard to get rid of that itch once you've gotten it. And of course, you know, I was I was just a young person. I wasn't really prepared for that kind of thing.
1: Mm, I see, thank you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: H- have, have you ever done a seance?
2: Oh, yes. Um, what happened was, is uh, when I got to college, I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we had a professor in theology who told us that Yeshua, Jesus, had been a magician, and that he, the way he did things like walk on water, turn water into wine, was he had gone and studied in the East with you know Tibetan masters or Indian gurus, or had gone to Egypt and studied with the magi or whatever, you know. So, so he said that if we wanted to be like Christ, and see that's a doctrine within the Catholic Church, is that the priest is another Christ. And so, therefore, he said, if you want to be like Christ, if you want to be a good priest, you should study the occult. So I kind of started reading some books, and I was very intrigued by it. I'd read about ESP and read, like, Hans Holzer's book on Ghostbusters and things like that. And uh, so this one older classmate of mine, it was Halloween night, and I'd been involved in a play, you know, helping out with the music. And um, he said, well, it's Halloween night. Let's do a seance. And he had heard... That this very important guy who'd given all sorts of money to this college had arranged for his deceased wife to be buried in the basement of the chapel. There, well, the United you know, States do that in Europe, you know, very important people under the chapel. And we so and I was I was um, music major, and so I had I was also working as a music librarian, so I had the keys to get in after hours. So we all went in, and there was this like this long corridor. At the end of the corridor were these huge oak doors. And um, right there was the lady buried behind those doors, a big, you know, sarcophagus. And so we all sat down cross-legged on the floor, and we held our hands. I won't say the lady's name, but we called out her name. Oh, you know, come and visit us, you know, the usual hokey adolescent thing. But the interesting was, and here's the weird thing, is that it was utterly black in this room because it was a basement. And and once we turn off the light, I mean, you could not see your hand in front of your face. And we were sitting along this, this wall in kind of an oval. No, none of us were near the door, the doors to the tomb. And after about two or three minutes of this guy, you know, caterwauling and trying to make the person appear, nothing ever appeared, but all of a sudden the door started to rattle. Like this, boom, 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 kind of like someone was on the other side of the door is trying to get out. And every one of us just lost it. I mean, you know, we just ran out of that that room as fast as like the devil was after us which of course in a sense he was and um that was the beginning of a a story i probably don't have time to go into on this thing but where because we we raised so to speak that ghost it it hung around there and haunted the place for like two years and scared the living daylights out of people and uh, it would do things like play the piano and then we open the practice room door and there'd be no pianist in the room and, or it would, it would actually throw people around, it would beat people up, it would cause music to appear on recording tapes, unbidden, all kinds of weird stuff. So, yeah, I, I had my share of
1: that. Wow, thanks. We have got a bit of extra time. What's that story you said
2: you'd like to Well, tell? um, basically, we, as I mentioned most of them, but the interesting thing is, is that at one point, in our part of the country, which is Iowa, we have a lot of tornadoes and stuff happening and, and, because of my position of responsibility, as, a, as I was called a band librarian, I was kind of supposed to watch over the music department. And one night we had a tornado warning, a tornado came nearby and knocked out all the power in Dubuque. And so the dean of men called me in and said, you go down there and watch the doors of the music department so nobody breaks in and vandalizes something or whatever. So I went down there with my buddy and we stood there. And all of a sudden, we heard this organ playing inside of the music department. It was locked. And it was playing the same eerie song that we were always, We'd come to associate that with this woman. And um, the dean of men came along with a flashlight after about five minutes of hearing this music. He says, Who's in there playing that music? And we said, Well, as far as we know, nobody. And he says, Well, this isn't right, you know, and I'm gonna go and investigate it. And we said, Sir, it's an electric organ. And there's no power. <laughs> And he I don't care, I'm going in there. So, you know, he had his key out, he opened the door, he had one of these big plastic flashlights, and he walked in, and as soon as he walked through the door, the flashlight detonated in his hand. It just blew up. Mm. There wasn't anything left of it. He just walked back out, locked the door, and went away. He didn't want anything to do with it. So the, the ultimate thing was, is that, is that anybody who went into that music department, it seemed would get beat up in some way or have some violent thing happen to them. And it even happened to me once. One time I was in there after dark and I was doing some business for the college and I left and turned all the lights off, went back in to get something I'd forgotten, and I felt something grab me on my ankle, hmm. like actually on my calf, my left calf, that just was like a searing red-hot hand. And it just it was blinding pain all up and down my leg. And uh, the funny thing was is when I got home there was actually like a first-degree burn there in the wow. shape of a human hand, woman's hand. And for years, my wife will confront us, no hair would grow on that area. You know, men have hair on their left. Wow. So anyway, it was really strange. And so finally, we decided we got to do You know, We started this. Unfortunately, the guy that had run the original seance had graduated. So by this time, I kind of read up on the occult. And I got this book called The Greater Key of Solomon, which is a black man, not black magic, it's really white magic grimoire. And it had an exorcism ritual in there. And so I thought, well, okay, I'm gonna go do this. And I went in and I a friend taught me how to use a credit card to slip the lock. So I went into the music department, and I slipped the lock on the tomb. And this was so strange because all my friends, in fact, like twenty or thirty people on the campus were all waiting for Bill Snublin to get creamed. Because <laughs> I was actually walking into the tomb, you know, at night in the dark. You know, it was like we didn't know what was gonna happen. And so I went up and I stood on the tomb because it was like about two feet off the ground, big marble slab. And uh, I read this ritual of exorcism. And, you know, it was weird because it had all these Jewish names and we were commanding the spirits to leave in the name of Adonai, and the name of Agala, the name of Tetragrammaton, or whatever. And nothing happened. Absolutely nothing. And they were all, all my friends were disappointed. You know, they thought they were getting some fireworks. But the funny thing was, is after I did that, Nothing else ever happened in that school good Well, but the problem was is see that taught me a false lesson Mm. that taught me that magic was efficacious It taught me that the occult could work Power could could Mm. have power over the dead over the spirit world whatever and that was actually a fraudulent lesson Right, but see that's how the devil does things he will get you to think you have power over the occult realms through rituals, through ceremony, through these various books or whatever. And actually, it's a fraud. Because really, we have, without without Yeshua, we have no power over evil whatsoever.
1: Right, thank you. So when you got involved in all those different
2: groups, what were your goals at the time? Well, part of it was, because of what this professor had told me, I was under the rather mistaken impression that I would become more like Christ by studying the occult. And so at first, it was like a noble spiritual quest. And and I began, primarily, I think my motivation was knowledge. The the whole idea, and again, this goes back, the word occult means hidden. This is a term that's even used like in, in medicine. They say if you have blood in your stool, it can't be seen. It's called occult blood. Anything that's hidden is occult. So hidden knowledge is always seductive. Everybody wants to know the mystery, you know. And, and that was what partly I wanted. I, want, I knew there was more out there than met the eye in my kind of banal Catholic upbringing. And I, I wanted to know more about the spiritual realm. Okay. I wasn't really in it for power. That came later. I see. I was in it to get the higher wisdom, you know.
1: Did you ultimately want to be good and help people?
2: at that time yes very much so I thought I was going to be a priest and I was going to you know bless people and do all this stuff and and be a be and, and really you know for a large part of even in once I got into the full-blown occult slash witchcraft part of my uh life we were very altruistic we were we were healers we were working to help people uh it was only toward the end that the corrupting influence of the occult started really kind of corroding my very soul
1: okay thank you how many years were you involved in Wicca?
2: Well, let me think. Probably around sixteen years, because I was first initiated in sixty-eight. I when I got born again and I left it, it was nineteen eighty-four. So I think that comes out to around sixteen years.
1: Okay. And how deep was your involvement with Wicca at that time?
2: Well, pretty deep. Uh, I mean, I, I started out. Of course, you know, you begin, you study, you read books, and you get initiated to the first degree. Uh, ultimately from 68 and finally in 73, I was made a witch high priest and along with my wife, who at the same time was made a witch high priestess. And, um, we were pretty deep into it. I mean, we, we, I, I, I had a more than 3,000 book library of occult books. Wow. And, uh, we taught classes. I was a certified astrologer. Uh, I did tarot readings. I was also trained as a medium. Uh, what today is called like a trance channeler. We did psychic readings. We printed ceremonial magic. I mean, you know, talk about been there, done that, bought the T-shirt. Well, that was me. I mean, we, both of us, were just very, very, you know, we're, we're kind of workaholics. We're kind of compulsive overachievers. And so when we got into this, we got into it. with. I mean, there were days, even though I had a full-time job where I would spend like three hours a day before I went to work, Practicing, doing conjurations, doing incantations, stuff like that to try and raise, you know, levels of occult power or supposedly improve the world or whatever, you know. So we were very deeply committed.
1: I see. And what was your normal job?
2: Well, I had several of them. Believe it or not, I, once I got out of college for, for a couple of years, I was a music teacher in a Catholic school because that was my degree. But, uh, they, I think they kind of got a little tired of me walking around with a pentagram around my neck, and, <laughs> you know. So they, they let me go. And, uh, and then I had numerous basically kind of menial jobs until, uh, really after I got saved. I, I never really had a really super duper job. I worked in a foundry for a while. I was a security guard. Um, I worked in, in for the Milwaukee Sentinel. I, because at this time we were all living in Milwaukee as a, Person that went around and filled up the boxes at night, you know, with the newspapers. So uh, that was basically my wonderful career.
1: Okay, thank you. What's the difference between Wicca, witchcraft, and magic?
2: Well, Wicca, it's it's actually the, the, it's pronounced witcher, really. It's the old Anglo Saxon word that means bent or twisted originally. But it's the origin of our word witch. And and so back in the fifties, when witches started coming out of the broom closet, pardon the pun, uh, they started calling themselves Wiccans because it sounded better, excuse me, than calling themselves uh, witches because witches had a really bad press back then. Everybody thought that uh, witches were ugly old hags with green skin and warts and everything. Uh, witchcraft is what a lot of witches do. But not by means any of them, because Wicca is actually a religion. Witchcraft is a technology that some—it's a mental, spiritual technology that some witches use. Most witches, I dare say, but but witchcraft is is more or less the same thing as magic, except magic is is higher, if you will. Uh, there's what is called low magic and what is called high magic. And typically, most witchcraft is low magic, which is it's, it's kind of like in, in the Church of England. They call about they talk about low church and high church, and the high church is more ceremonial, and the low church is more simple and sort of almost like Protestant. Well, it's the same thing with this. The low magic, which is witchcraft, is usually pretty simple, more akin to what anthropologists would call folk magic, uh, whereas uh, magic is more like. Ceremonies and wearing fancy robes and very, very elaborate, you know, things where you have to be very literate. You have to be able to read Latin and Greek and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, there's a big difference there. The technical definition of magic, which was made by the infamous magician Alistair Crowley, he said, magic is the art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. But I would add to that because that's a little simplistic. I would add to that without any visible means of doing so. In other words, I can move a pencil across a table and I've caused change to occur in conformity with my will, but that isn't really magic. If I could move that pencil without touching it, that would be magic.
1: Okay. And how are you spelling
2: magic? Well, that, m- most ceremonial, serious magicians spell magic the old English way with a K on the end. M-I-G-M-A-G-I-C-K. To distinguish it from stage magic. Press the pulling rabbits out of hats.
1: Okay. Thanks. So, a lot of people believe that the power of witchcraft is imaginary. What do you say about that?
2: Well, in a sense, they're right. Um, witchcraft as, in its power as they're thinking of it is imaginary. But instead of the the witches believe, magic comes within them. Or that it comes from being at one with the earth and at one with the sky and this kind of pantheistic thing where, you know, kind of like the force in Star Wars, you know. But actually, there is a real power in witchcraft, but the power comes from the demonic realm. If you say, you know, if you if you give yourself over to these gods, these ancient gods, and say, I'm going to serve you, what they don't realize is that behind those, those gods are a mask. And behind those masks is the demonic, ultimately Satan himself. And so when you do something magical, and I did many things that were apparently at least a very vast coincidence is at least, if not downright miraculous at most. And uh, they were done by the power of demons.
1: Okay, And how do you know that? because a lot of people who maybe are into witchcraft mm-hmm. are going to say, well, that's not true.
2: Well, let me give you an illustration. Um, this this a friend of mine, colleague in the ministry, was on a radio show, and he was talking about this very subject. And a witch high priest called up and challenged him with the very question you asked. He said, well, I don't believe my powers come from demons. I believe my powers come from the, the sky god and the mother goddess. And my friend said okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray right now in the name of Yeshua, Jesus Christ, that all the demons in you that give you the power to do these things will be bound for one week until you come to your senses. And he prayed that prayer right over the air, and the guy just got mad and hung up. Two or three days later, the guy called the show. He wasn't even on, my friend wasn't even there. And the guy was frantic because he had nowhere else to call. And he says, I don't have my occult power anymore. It's been gone from the very day you prayed that prayer, or the other fellow did. Oh, wow. and he said, "I want it because he you know he was into power." And he said, "Obviously, your God has more power than my God, and I want that power." Now that's not the best reason to become a Christian, <laughs> but you know it was a start. And that guy ended up getting saved, and he was one of the most prominent which high priest in the greater Seattle area. Wow, great story. So that, that kind of illustrates the point. And I could tell you several other stories of a similar nature.
1: Okay, tell us one more.
2: Well, okay, uh, this is on a slightly different tack, but I'm sure many people know about the the almost supernatural powers that supposedly are possessed by high-level Kung Fu masters. That, that, you know, they can, like, punch at a wall and not even touch it and have the wall collapse or make people fall down just by giving their... You know, their ki-eye type shout at the person or whatever. Well, one time, another colleague of mine who's a minister in Wyoming, his meeting was disrupted by this local guy who was this really high-level, you know, Shaolin master. And he came in and he challenged the guy right there on the spot and wanted to fight him. He says, You see, you know, you claim you worship this great, mighty God. Well, you know, take me on. So the guy just prayed in the name of Yeshua and he said, you will not be able to move until I allow you to by the power of the blood of Yeshua. And the guy fell flat on his face before the altar, just spread eagle, and he, it was like the gravity around him would become like the gravity of Jupiter. And the guy was just pinned to the floor like, like there was a magnet there. And he, he laid there for like 10 minutes. Wow. And he finally started pleading with the guy to let him up. And, you know, the guy was a nice guy, and he, he, he asked the Lord to let him up, and he was fine. And then he repented and went to the altar and got saved. So, you know, again, that shows that that what a lot of people think is power that comes from within or power that comes from the universe is actually occult power.
1: Okay, great. Thank you for those stories. Um, A lot of people think that witchcraft is very rare. What would you say about that from your own experience?
2: Well, again, I, I would say to a degree that's true. There are a lot of witches, but most of those witches... Don't know what they're doing. They don't really have a lot of occult power. They're basically playing around. It's still dangerous because they've turned their back on the living, you know, Elohim, the living God, and they're, they're worshiping false gods. But, but even in my own life, uh, as a witch, I had in, in 16 years of predicing the occult, maybe, maybe a half dozen times in those, in that life when I did something really astounding. There were a lot of times when when we would do magic and nothing would happen. Quite a lot, in fact. But every now and then the devil would throw us a bone. And we we, we, remember years ago we had seen this movie uh, Little Big Man with Dustin Hoffman. and There's this old Native American Indian chief in it. And he was supposed to go up on top of a mountain and die and do magic so he would die. And nothing happened. And he walked on the mountain and said, "Eh, sometimes the magic works and sometimes it doesn't. And so that became kind of our, ta- our tagline. Oh well, sometimes the magic works, sometimes it doesn't. So, it's not like there are all these witches running around doing all these wonderful, miraculous things. It's, it's a comparative rarity. But there are, li- there are literally tens of thousands of witches in America, probably hundreds of thousands by now. Uh, it was very rare when we got into it back in the, in the late 60s. But now, it's, I mean, you can go to any occult bookstore or even any regular bookstore and find like, you know, 25, 30 books on how to be a witch.
1: Hmm. Wow. Thank you. So. Would you please share us the story about the man who um, got attacked by a demon in his garage when he tried to call him up? Well, this is this is ceremonial
2: magic now, which is like high art, high church, high theater. But the idea is you, you lay down this special circle on the floor with chalk and sulfur and various other things, depending on what ritual you're doing. And then you stay in the circle as the magician and you outside the circle, you, you set up this what's called a triangle of manifestation on the floor and you call up some powerful demon spirit to come and serve you. And supposedly, as long as you're in this circle, he can't hurt you. That's the rules. And so this guy was calling up the demon, the, what, what the demon that Aleister Crowley called the mighty demon, Haranzan. This is one of the mightiest and most feared of all demons on earth. And he was calling this demon up, and it took, like, hours and hours. He'd, these incantations and vile-smelling incenses filling this garage. And he would basically turned into, into a ceremonial temple. And, you know, all of a sudden, the demon started to manifest. And you could see this just awful-looking thing that is indescribable. And he started to command it, because the idea is you command this demon that he will have to obey you from then on, How- kind of like a genie.
1: How would the did the demon just appear like as a ghost in the room or No, what? it
2: was like this big sort of slimy tentacle, you know, amorphous uh, really not easy to describe, you know, very very pustulant and tentacles and slithery and you know, not at all anthropomorphic, hmm. you know. And he was he was exerting his force on this demon and And the 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 thing was reaching crescendo, the the magic circle was actually glowing. It was so powerful. And I know this is true, because I'm the one who was sitting there keeping track of all this as a scribe, because every ceremonial magician has a little lowly peon flunky to write everything down. Wow. Kind of like a scribe. So this demon, like how big was it? It towered to the very roof of the garage. And all of it, and it's because I was sitting in what they call a neutral triangle, so the demon didn't mess with me.
1: And and was it, like, solid, or could you sort of see through it? It was
2: sort of amorphous. But see, the ideal is is that the more incense you burn and the more blood you shed, the demon draws substance from this. This is what's called the material basis in ceremonial magic. So the more incense the guy burned, the more easily you could see the demon. Hmm. Well, finally, just when this thing is reaching a shendo, all of a sudden the phone rang. And the guy reached out of the circle to answer the phone, and instantly. The circle vanished and he vanished. Just in a flash of sulfur. And the funny thing was there was no foam in the room. Ooh. That's how tricky these demons can be. And I went in and I told the guy's wife, <laughs> widow, <laughs> and and you know, she was also into this. She was a witch a witch and a sorceress. And she was just sort of philosophical about it, you know. I mean, oh well, you know, it happens. Obviously, she was very upset, but you can't call the police and say a demon kidnapped my husband and carried him into the abyss. You know, they don't really have jurisdiction there. So um, that illustrates that, even though people think this is either you know fun stuff like Harry Potter or it's it's like you know just just even not even real, it can be very real. Now, I'm not saying that happens every week. That kind of thing, it probably doesn't. But this guy was a very high-level ceremonial magician, and yet he was still able to be tricked by the demon. Wow.
1: Now, what's the definition of a ceremonial magician?
2: Well, that's like ceremonial magic is the highest form of magic, and it's where you have to learn long, elaborate. Some rituals, like we did one ritual called uh, the sacred magic of Abra Malim, the mage, that took six months mm. of preparation. Wow. And every day you have to go through purifications. And and many of your your viewers probably have heard the, the magic word abracadabra. You're sure? Well, that came from that. That's a word on a magic square from the sacred magic of Robert William the Mage. And, and that usually they involve robes and incense. And you have to wear certain colored robes and certain colored candles. And you have to have wands and swords and... You know, all kinds of stuff. It's, very, it's not something that the person who didn't have a lot of money would want to do. And, and usually it involves either invocation or evocation. Invocation is where you believe you're calling on something higher than yourself, like an angelic being. These people believe that they can call upon angels and command them, which of course is, you know, horse-pucky. That's what they believe. Now, an evocation is where they call on something that's lower than a human being, like a demon, an elemental, an elementary, or something like that, and command them to serve them. And that particular um, book that I was talking about, it would have all these talismans that were drawn parchment, that would be like magic squares, except they'd have letters in them, and like a talisman to find treasure, or a talisman to, to have a woman fall in love with you. or a a talisman to be able to fly through the air. And you would have, you would get conversation and knowledge with your HGA, your holy guardian angel. That was the ultimate goal of this. And the holy guardian angel would touch these different talismans and empower them so then you could find treasure or fly or whatever it happened to be. So we went through all of this stuff, just months of it. And we did the ritual, and then, of course, we had all these talismans, and none of them worked.
1: Okay. Hey, does that mean there's something wrong with guardian angels?
2: No, there's nothing wrong with guardian angels. This is just a construct that that they come because you've got to realize these people that came up with this stuff in the Middle Ages—that's where most ceremonial magic originated—was between like the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, 1500s. They lived in fear of their lives because if they were found, the Catholic Church, which was really the only church in those days, would burn them at the stake. And so they made their stuff sound very Christian. Ah. They used like biblical. I mean, if you were to read some of these things, you would think you were reading like there. There might be psalms. There might be long passages where the where the person is addressed either in the name of the name of God, you know, like Yahweh or or you know El Elyon or Adonai or something, or whatever. And and so they were made to appear to be very holy and very sanctimonious. And, and they were often written in Latin, which was, of course, the sacred language. So uh, the, the problem is that they did that to mask the fact that they were actually trafficking with dark forces.
1: Well, well, sometimes we have, like, politicians will say a prayer to God, so that means they could be praying to someone else. How would you tell the difference?
2: Well, I mean, only, really only Yahweh God knows a man's heart or a woman's heart. So if he is saying a prayer, we don't know if he's really praying to the true God or not. Uh, because really, you know, this is might uh, surprise some of readers, but the, the name of God is not God. That's not his name. That's actually the name of an ancient uh, Sumerian little g-god of fortune or good luck. The name of the true and living deity is Yahweh. And, you know, and his son, of course, is Jesus Yeshua. So if you pray in those names, you know, you may or may not be a genuine uh, believer. You, only, only, you know, only the Almighty knows that. We, we're told not to judge people's hearts, but only to judge their fruits. And if there's someone who says, oh, I'm a Christian politician, you know, all this stuff, and then he's going out there and doing all this reprehensible stuff, then you know he's probably, you know, you got to kind of be a fruit inspector.
1: I see. Okay. Can you tell us some more stories that show witchcraft has some power?
2: One example, um, there's a law within the witches. The the witches have their own kind of Bible, it's called the Book of Shadows. And basically, one of the rules in it is the law of threefold return. If you do something good to someone, you're supposed to get it back three times better. If you do something nasty to another person, you get it back three times worse. Well. Way back in the very beginningest days of my being a witch, I was just a little baby witch. And um, I had this other, not, not my wife, I hadn't even met my wife yet, I had this other girl who was working as kind of a sort of substitute priestess, and I bought her a set of what are called bigas, which is the word for the witch jewels. And it's like a special necklace and crown and all, and they're very sacred. Kind of like, it's sort of like a bargain-based version of the crown jewels in the Tower of London, if you will. And and because every head of a coven is actually a queen, she's a witch queen. And anyhow, this girl had a friend who was not really a very good friend, and she came in and, while the girl wasn't looking, she stole those things and pawned them, those jewels. They weren't even very expensive, you know, but, but it was the idea that this girl stole something from the goddess. Well, because of this law of threefold return, within 24 hours, this young lady, who was only like 19 or 20 years old, fell down two flights of stairs, broke her back, and was paralyzed from the waist down, as far as I know to this day. Um, that's not obviously a very good thing. We also, yeah. we did numerous occasions, we did spells of healing. Uh, one one time a lady in our, our coven, her husband was having a problem with, with his, um, what they call, erectile dysfunction. And we did a spell of love and it healed that. Uh, so, you know... Again, there is real stuff happening here, but it's powered by the demonic. Thanks. It's not powered by, you know... And what might
1: be the downside to those people? I mean, something good happened, but what's going to be the well, downside down the track?
2: That I mean, again, the devil never gives you anything without taking something greater away from you. That's the danger. And so the downside is, is that all these people got more faith in the gods of Wicca and less faith in the true God of the Bible. That's the main downside. They were more and more deeply deceived. Now, here's the funny thing. You should ask that. Without saying any names, this this fellow who had the problem, once that spell was done, within about a year and a half, he was running around cheating on his wife. (gasps) His wife didn't know about it. And he ended up finally, and she was the sweetest young lady, and he finally ended up divorcing her. And marrying some like you know 17 year old chick who was like you know ten years younger than his wife, kind of typical It was like he was having a midlife crisis and he wasn't even 29 years old um, so that's an interesting illustration of how this kind of thing can backfire on you. You end up with sort of a case of permanent pre Oh,
1: thank you. can you tell us another story to show how the power of Jesus is greater than even all these other powers
2: <laughs> well when i had gone on and we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here in several years after this time i had gotten involved in satanism and um i met a guy who was the one of the highest ranking satanists in the whole midwest and he was treat teaching me and an interesting thing happened a lady a guy i should say came and paid this fellow i think it was 500 bucks to kill his ex-wife by a magical curse in other words he put out a psychic hit on his ex-wife, because he wanted custody of the kids. Not a very nice guy. And he paid us this money, and he had this fellow ask me to help out with a curse. And so we got out, and we started doing curses. Nothing worked. Nothing worked. In fact, we'd sent out these power... We even did what's called in voodoo a grand and voodromat, which is one of the great, most powerful curses you can level against someone. Nothing. The only thing that happened is that upon numerous occasions, these... These demonic forces we would send out against this woman would come back and beat the tire out of us. It was like they would karam back and we'd get hit with horrible things, you know, like asthma attacks and seizures and whatever. And later on, I found out that this guy that had made the contract, he was a the son of a preacher and his wife was a Christian. Now, obviously, this guy wasn't much of a Christian, but his wife was still walking with the Lord. And she was protected by the blood, and so everything we threw at her just bounced right back. Just no matter what we did, it just did not work. And of course, since we got saved, we've had we've got so many people mad at us. We got the Mormons mad at us, the Masons mad at us, the witches mad at us, the Satanists mad at us. We've got so many people cursing us. We have to you know kind of like you know keep a phone book full. And yet, 99% of this stuff never gets through because we're protected. You know, it's kind of funny, the Hebrew word for blood is dom. And I tell people, warm with the dom. of <laughs> Like, like a, the horse field that's around us that protects us by the power of the living God. Great.
1: What can you say about the light? Since so many people think if there's a demon or a bad thing, that they'll just send it to the light and that solves all problems.
2: Well, we were taught that as, as spiritualist mediums, because both my wife and I were ordained as, as spiritualist ministers and mediums. Oh, you just, if you see a spirit coming in, you just say, like, oh, do you stand in the light? Or like you say, if it's a bad, oh, I just send it to the light, you know? Well, people forget that light is like, it's neutral. I mean, in Lucifer himself, the name means light bearer. He's called an angel of light in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. So light in and of itself, I mean, there can be a false light. And that's the problem, you know, when you, you know, I know when I went through the Luciferian initiation, maybe we're getting to get of ourselves here, but it was like this searing, blinding light came into my brain, just like someone pouring molten light, molten lava into my mind. And it blinded me. I mean, even though I had my eyes closed, the light was so bright, it was like the incandescent light of a thousand suns. And that was my illumination. That was my enlightenment with the light of Lucifer. So, I had all the light you could possibly want. I felt like my brain had a suntan by the time we were done, but I knew nothing. I was in spiritual darkness. so sometimes you know the the illusion of light is actually the deepest sort of darkness, and it's much more it's much more efficacious to challenge an evil spirit in the name of Yeshua, Jesus Christ, and you know command it to obey and to ask, "Do you serve?" the living God, Yahweh, Elohim, King of the Universe. And, of course, they have to say, no, I don't. Okay. And then you just send them on their right merry
1: way. Do they have love in witchcraft? Pardon me? It, love. Is that... Oh, well,
2: yes. I mean, witches are... are I mean, there, there's a, there's an old, like, wives' tale that says, witches cannot love and they cannot cry. But that's, that's not really true. Witches are just normal people. They're... They're just as normal as Methodists and Baptists and Hare Krishnas and Buddhists, you know. So they can love. Uh, they may not be able to have the kind of unselfish agape love that the Christians have, but they can love. They, I mean, I like you know, I love my wife very deeply. I love her a bazillion times more now. But you know, and I know many people who were you know very much in love. But I will also tell you this: Wicca is very hard on marriages. We had. We performed quite a few hand fastings, which is the name for a witch wedding, and uh, had many people who were married even before they joined our covens, and not one of those marriages survived except ours. All of the rest of the marriages ended in divorce, which is much higher than the national average.
1: Right. Uh, You make the comment in one of your books that a lot of people go to Wicca because they're sick of organized religion. Does Wicca have any of the problems of organized religion?
2: Well, of course it does, because anytime you have people, you have problems. I mean, like the old joke about, "Oh, I'm trying to find a perfect church, but if I found the perfect church and joined it, it wouldn't be perfect anymore because I'd be in it." <laughs> you know, there's no such thing as a perfect anything. But the thing, the difference is, is that Wicca has only really, really Wicca has only been around in any kind of organized way for less than a century, so it hasn't <laughs> had as much time or as much power to mess up. The way the christian church has down to the centuries but yeah there was backbiting there was fighting there was guys cheating on their wives and you know the fact we had one guy actually tried to shoot another guy in the coven because he found out that the guy was cheating on his wife i mean the it, it really they have all the same problems so just on a smaller scale because of course there aren't like you know coven by law can only be 13 members so you can't have like a church of five hundred people. You can't have a covenant of five hundred people. But even in a microcosmic sense, there's still bickering and backbiting and betrayal, and all the same problems. That's why many witches now are choosing to be what is called solitaires, which means they just practice entirely by themselves, and it's it's easy then because you have a church of one. You know, and obviously you can get along and do whatever you want. Right. But that doesn't really solve the problem. The person is still lost. They're still on their way to hell.
1: So what's the history of Wicca? Because I imagine a lot of people think that it's an ancient religion.
2: Well, that's how it's built. They call it il vecchio religione, the old religion. But actually, even witches uh, that are serious about their scholarship will admit that probably there was no such thing as the witch cult, as it's now described, prior to the early part of the 20th century. In fact, a lot of them will now say that probably Gerald Gardner, who was a retired uh, British civil servant who basically made witchcraft popular in the 1950s. See, in Britain, up until 1951, it was a crime to say you were a witch. It came under the, the heading of being a scam artist. And then they changed the law and they made it the Fraudulent Mediums Act. And so for the first time in the history of Britain, it was legal to say you were a witch. And so just a couple years after that, Gerald Gardner came along and wrote a book called High Magic's Aid, which was a fictional account of a witch coven in the New Forest region of England. And that was the beginning of the modern witch cult. And really, uh, most serious witches will will tell you, you can't really find any trace. Yeah, there were witches before the 1900s, but they weren't the kind of witches that these people want to be. They were basically either they were casting spells and cursing people and doing all sorts of weird junk or they were herbalists, which isn't there's nothing wrong with being an herbalist but you know they were just weird old women lived off in the woods and and gathered herbs and stuff so really even though the the pr is that witchcraft is very ancient it might be based on a few concepts that are ancient but there's no direct lineage like you know, the the the, the pa, pardon me, the Catholic Church claims that it's apostolic succession back to Peter. Well, there's no such thing as that in Wicca. Wicca is basically a made-up religion. It was made up out of whole cloth in the '30s and '40s.
1: Has it got a connection to Druidism?
2: Well, yes, because uh, although really that even is very tenuous. Because see, very few people even know what the Druids actually did. That's true. It's it's kind of their their religion that because they had no. Written language, see that was one weird, wonderful thing about the druids is they they had to memorize everything they had no written nothing was written down, and because of that, we have no real record except in the broadest sense of what druids believe and actually druids did not believe a lot of the things witches believe for example, druids did not believe in reincarnation they believed in the immortality of the soul, but they did not believe in reincarnation and a lot of the other, most witches believe in, in reincarnation. They they had a, they believed in a trinity, and they did not believe in a goddess. A lot of people are astonished at wow. that. Wow. So actually, while a lot of witches will claim, oh, we're descended from the Druids and blah, blah, blah. Actually, a lot of the, like even just in the last 20 or 30 years, they're coming up with a lot of, of new things they've uncovered, like burial mounds, and there's not a lot of evidence that the Druids had any kind of matriarchal goddess figures except in the most rudimentary sense.
1: Mm, thank you. It. A lot of people think that Wicca and modern occultism, it's good to embrace your dark side. Do you think that's a good or bad idea? Uh,
2: well, I. <laughs> I don't think it's a good idea because, I mean, the Bible tells us that we all have a dark side. We all have a sin nature. But the problem is we don't want to let that out. You know, we want to ask the lord to come in and transform that by the power of his love but because i'll tell you the problem with all this it all goes back to carl jung jung was a very prominent psychologist probably the second most influential psychologist of the 20th century after freud and he had this idea of the collective unconscious and the the idea that all of us had like what he called the shadow within ourselves which is like this dark slimy evil part of ourselves that we don't want to acknowledge and Jung taught that part of becoming individuated, which means becoming whole as a person, is embracing that dark side. And it's not a good idea. I mean, we know what happened to you know Darth Vader in the Star Wars movies. <laughs> you don't want to embrace something that's evil. I mean, all of us have parts of ourselves that are not good, that we, we don't want to acknowledge. What we need to do is give those to, to the Almighty and say, transform these by the power of the love of the Holy Spirit. Not, not embrace them and say, well, it's okay if I want to nurture my, my inner child molester or my inner mass murderer or my inner serial killer. No, you don't want to do that. You want to repent. You want to get right with, with the Almighty.
1: Great, thank you. Mm-hmm. From your own experience, if someone's having thinks they're having bad spells cast on them by someone else, what do you think they should do?
2: Well, first of all, if they're not a Christian, they should get born again. But beyond that, assuming they are a Christian, and we we get letters like this just about every day of the week because everybody knows I'm an ex-witch. And essentially, we tell people, well, first of all, be sure you're walking closely with Yahweh God. Be sure you're not in any kind of sin because typically, if you're a faithful believer and you're under the blood, nothing was going to touch you unless, like, you have a rare situation like with Job, you know, where yahweh basically said to the devil okay you know go ahead and do something for my greater glory but that's not common and um so i tell him first of all be sure your own house is in order and second of all if 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 there are, things are still getting through then you need to do some aggressive warfare praying you need to be sure you're putting on a full armor of god according to ephesians six twelve and following you need to be sure your land is prayed over your, your house is prayed over that you've consecrated yourself and, and your family your kids to the service of Yahweh God and and that usually helps you know basically wipe out all of that Good. so that's the number one I mean you know some there are some rare cases where it persists beyond that and then there's more detailed stuff we go into that in one of our books blood on the doorpost
1: okay excellent thank you <music>